the main goal of the book to try to make as best I could both sides, you know, have a little understanding of each other. And the dispute really has been, I think, quite destructive because people were concerned about the same things. People were concerned about agriculture, of course, concerned about the environment and vice versa, has been hobbling so many of the environmental disputes have been you know, dragged down by infighting within people who are concerned about the same thing. Welcome to Croptastic, the interplant podcast where your host, Shelley Aronov, explores the global future of agriculture and food. This is a particularly exciting episode as we're joined by Charles C. Mann, the New York Times bestselling author of 1491, New Revelations of the Americas Before Columbus, and 1493, Uncovering the New World Columbus Created. Charles shares insights with us about his more recent book, The Wizard and the Prophet, Two Remarkable Scientists and Their Dueling Visions to Shape Tomorrow's World, and chats with Shelley about the lessons the story of Norman Borlaug and William Vogt have for the future of agriculture. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Croptastic, the podcast by Interplant. Today's guest is author and journalist Charles Mann, who is known for writing um, historical environmental novels like 1491 and 1493, but also for a book that I highly recommend and the reason that we invited him to the podcast, The Wizard and the Prophet. Charles, thank you for being here today. Sure, it's my pleasure. Would you maybe start with uh, an introduction of yourself and how you, you came into writing this type of books? Absolutely. I'm a science uh, journalist. I worked for a long time as a correspondent for in the news division of Science Magazine, and also covering this kind of thing for the for places like the Atlantic Monthly and the New York Times. And uh, I'm quite interested in environmental issues, and those overlap with agricultural issues. So, of course, I'm interested in them as well. And over time, over you know many years of talking to researchers and politicians and activists and farmers and uh, environmental landscape managers, I realized that the kinds of answers that I got to questions fell into two kind of broad categories that I mentally tagged as wizards and prophets. And uh, wizards are people who essentially believe that science and technology properly applied can let us produce our way out of our uh, dilemmas. We can make more food. We can, you know, take, uh, use desalination to create more water. We can do, we can, we can use nuclear power to create more energy and, and so forth. And the prophets believe, on the other hand, that the world is governed by these fundamental ecological limits, and we surpass these limits to our peril. And so we've got to, you know, kind of hunker down. And the cliche would be, you know, put on our cardigan sweaters and turn down the thermostat and all that kind of thing that I'm sure that you guys are are, are familiar with. And these answers are kind of the opposite to each other. Um, and there's been this fundamental split in thinking about environmental questions, agricultural questions, and all manner of um, scientific questions that goes back at least to the 1940s. And often as I talk to people that I thought of as wizards, I would hear them say, I want to do what Norman Borlaug did, but for X. And Norman Borlaug is the main figure associated with the Green Revolution, which is the um, combination of um, high-yielding seeds, irrigation, and um, high-tech fertilizers that doubled, tripled, or even quadrupled grain yields between the 1960s and the 1980s. It was just an enormous impact on the history of the world and the way we live today. We can talk about that. And the prophets were following a guy who's much less well-known, 
uh, Borlaug at least won a Nobel Prize, um, right. named William Vogt. Um, and he is the progenitor of the modern environmental movement. And he's the guy behind the idea that we have these, these limits. So I came up with the idea for the book that I would to tell people about these two guys who are, I think, pretty important. Um, and also kind of explore what their ideas mean for energy, um, food, you know, water, and then climate change. And that's what the book is about. Let me ask you something. You're saying that these movements really originated in the 1940s. What was the trigger then uh, to something that I would say is really very predominant now? Well, the Green Revolution, which is uh, Norman Borlaug, began kind of almost accidentally when the Rockefeller Foundation was asked uh, just before the, uh, the, the Second World War began to help improve agriculture in Mexico. And um, this was really tied to the war effort because we wanted we, it was thought that Mexico might side with the you know the bad guys, the Nazis, and that this was because people there were so poor and the country was very unstable. And if you could improve Mexican corn production, which is maize production, it would help. And there's a small offshoot of that, which was to look at the production of wheat, which is among a crop in, in in Mexico, which is badly affected by stem rust, which is kind of a classic uh, wheat disease. In fact, it's so classic that this goes back to at least to the Romans, and there was actually Romans had a sort of minor god of stem rust, rust who they would pray to to hope to avoid it. And Borlaug, who was clearly the wrong guy for this in a certain way, because he didn't speak Spanish, he never bred wheat, he didn't know anything about stem, stem rust at all. Right? He had no experience but, crops in that. at all. It, it, it kind of fell into this job, but in another way, he was completely dead right because he didn't have any preconceptions. Right. He was a phenomenally hard worker and a very smart guy. And he more or less invented modern plant breeding, which is done on a massive scale. And, um, he bred thousands upon thousands of varieties of wheat, you know, using hand processes that was just an unimaginable amount of labor, you know, doing this all by hand. And he eventually came up with a type of wheat that was not only resistant to stem rust, but could be grown almost anywhere in the world and spent much less of its energy growing the um, stalk of the crop and directing it instead into, into, into grain. And um, this was a revolutionary action because when you coupled this with higher fertilizer to feed these uh, new crops and um, irrigation, you could do grow massively more food on the same amount of, of land. And this meant that uh, all those earnest predictions that we had in the 1950s and 60s, that the population was going uh, to inevitably, population boom was inevitably going to produce, you know, horrible starvation. You see it in books like The Population Bomb. Right. Um, it didn't come true. And today, on average, you know, we more people have more food than ever before. I mean, when I was born, you know, roughly 40% of the world didn't, get food all the time you know they were what the un has serious names for it but they're like you know food instability and that kind of thing which meant that they people went hungry at some point during the year right and now the figure is like eight percent and considering that the world's population has more than doubled in that time that's an incredible achievement you know the average person now has enough to eat anywhere you go in the world and that's just really remarkable it's unprecedented and we're still living in the ripples of that enormous change in our in our lives. And a great deal of that has to do with Norman Borlaug and the science-driven approach that I, you know, sort of waggishly called the wizard approach. And you and you mentioned that in the book that this is maybe the first time in human history 
that we have a surplus of calories mostly, right? Not everywhere, but mostly. And this yes. all originated with the Green Revolution. Yeah, I mean, there's lots of other things that happen, good governance and better storage and better shipping and all that. But, you know, right at the heart of it is this enormous increase in yields from um, the Green Revolution, which, as I mentioned, is a combination of these improved seeds, mm -hmm. much more um, access to irrigation and much more um, fertilizer. And it's something I feel should be taught to every school child that we're mm -hmm. living in this historically <laughs> unprecedented time um, where people aren't hungry, more or less. Look, because the world's population is so big, the fact that 8% don't um, have enough translates into a lot of people. And for those people, you know, we urgently need to um, do, do, do what we can, Absolutely. which would include, you know, better use of the food we already have. But the fact remains that for that, for the first time in our history, we have more people obese than hungry, which is mind boggling. So let's jump to it then. So what's wrong with the wizards? I mean, everything you said sounds amazing. So the critique is this. Yes, the, the, the prophets um, say we have, we have done all this. But it's not possible to do this on the long term because there's just you know, too many people. And feeding them all disrupts the fundamental ecological processes on which our lives depend. And so, you know, we're exhausting topsoil. We're causing enormous amounts of erosion, flooding the seas with um, excess nitrogen, which is causing dead zones. It's a whole litany of familiar environmental um, problems. And so the fear is that the long, long cost of this success will ultimately catch up with us and outweigh the, uh, the successes that, we, that we've seen in our, our, our lifetime. And this is not crazy, right? You know, the, these problems are real. And the wizards eventually say, well, yes, but we, you know, we, we click on the science machine and we'll solve those problems. And the prophets tend to say things like, well, wait, Na you know, the famous line is nature bats last. You can't outwit nature. Um, you know, we have to adapt to nature sooner or later or else we're in trouble. And honestly, I, I believe I'm probably a wizard. What Interplant does is, is very much in the, in Norman Burlong's, um, footsteps. But when I was reading the book, I was thinking, it's true. There's no one right way. I'd be curious if you can then describe the position of William Vaught and the environmentalists. And yeah, yeah let's start with that. And then. I'll jump into some more questions about that. Sure. And you've actually just made me very happy because the main goal of the book was um, to try yeah. to make, as best I could, both sides, you know, have a little understanding of each other. Because, you know, that's the only way to communicate. And the dispute really has been, um, I think, quite destructive because... People were concerned about the same things. People were concerned about agriculture, of course, concerned about the environment and vice versa, has been hobbling um, so many of the environmental disputes have been you know, dragged down by infighting within people who are concerned about the same thing. Um, and so if you could... Not agreeing about basically anything. Yeah. Anyway, um, so vote was born you know, roughly the same, beginning of the 20th century, roughly the same time as a little bit before, but roughly the same time as Borod. And he had the common experience. He was born in a very poor family, like Borod, and, uh, in Long Island, which was then, you know, he was born a very rural agricultural place. And he sort of swept over by suburbs. And, 
the destruction of the environment around him. And he grew to become an ornithologist. And he saw, um, you know, personally, the environmental devastation done by what we would now think of as bad agricultural pra practices, particularly and interestingly in Latin America, which is also where um, Bor Borlaug worked. And he, whereas Borlaug looked at the people there and thought they have not been equipped with the right tools, he looked at the landscape and thought, these people are ravaging it, and we need to stop ravaging the land. And so in 1948, um, he wrote the first modern, um, I call them, we're all going to hell books. And by that, I mean, I mean, these books that say, if we keep doing this, we're doomed. And the books by Al Gore, the books by The Population Bomb, the uh, there's another famous book that came out, uh, Famine 1975, The Limits to Growth. There's a whole parade of these books. All of them have the roots in um, Boat's book, which was called um, The Road to Survival, and was, was an enormous um, success and scared a lot of people um, back in, in, in 1948. And Borlaug and Vote crossed paths in Mexico and instantly hated each other. And uh, Vote, much to his discredit, tried to get um, Borlaug kind of shut down. He was sort of half-hearted about it and didn't work. But there's just no question that there's antipathy right from the start. Because what the prophets see for people like Borlaug doing is like there's a fire going on and they're throwing gas on it. You know, there's too much uh, production already and you're trying to make more. And mm -hmm. whereas the Wizards see people like um, Vote as trying to constrain human freedom, as trying to constrain the human intellect, and you know, forcing us into a kind of primitive uh, condition. And so there's a you know, antipathy right from the start. I think one of the challenges with the Vought mindset is people want to consume more, and. I'm just trying to understand what was the rationale? How can you convince people to go against human nature and not a few people decide they're going to change the way they do things. So maybe they fly less and they eat vegan, other great things, but somehow convincing everyone in different socioeconomical conditions that we're now going to reverse course and consume less. How do you even, how do you go there? What's the plan? Well, you know, there's, there's, I guess I would put it this way. There's consuming less and consuming less. And by that, I mean, for example, my wife is a, an architect and uh, she's built us what I think of as a very beautiful home that is extremely well insulated and has lots of uh, um, light sources to the outside cleverly placed so that most of the day we don't need any light and most days in the year, we don't need any heat. It's just, you know, achieved through efficiency. And so our energy bill, we have some solar panels up on the roof, is tiny. And, uh, you know, you could, you could, so there's, and I don't feel looking out at what I think is a beautiful home that I'm deprived of anything. Um, so there, there's plenty of solutions that you can have if you want to, where people consume less and um, are perfectly fine. It doesn't have to be what is called sometimes hair shirt um, environmentalism. Now, I have to tell you, there's also at the same time, there's plenty of, um, I think of them as kind of scolds who are saying, you know, you waste too much, you're too thoughtless and, and, and all that sort of stuff. But, you know, on the side, there's just plenty of things that are perfectly fine. Um, I'm not a vegetarian. 
um, by, by any means, but, uh, recently, um, we were given a vegetarian cookbook by a, another, by a fancy chef who's not a vegetarian and the, the meals are delicious. And so, um, I don't feel like I'm depriving myself eating this, uh, when we cook this fancy food that doesn't have any meat in it. So I think it very much depends on the way that you, um, that, that you're easy on the, on the planet in your field. You know, consuming less would be include consuming less fertilizer. Now, about 40% of the fertilizer, you know, in, in, in North America that goes on the crops, more or less, doesn't go on the crop, but instead ends up in the water system. It benefits nobody there. And so if you could come up with a system in which people would consume less fertilizer, but have it more accurately targeted, that would be um, an example of... That's you know, a great... Less, everybody would be better off. That's a great segue, though, because... The way to find or the way to consume less nitrogen, and I agree with you, about 40% of nitrogen, 30 to 40% is completely wasted. But that will be through the wizards. It's not, you can't just ask people to use less because then they're going to have a lot more risk associated with growing crops, which is already a very risky proposition to start, right? This is where the worlds have to collide. Maybe it's using less, but it is. A scientific way of using less. Right. I feel like I'm in uh, sort of accidentally backed myself into a position where I'm coming off as if I'm trying to argue for the profit's case. I'm no, I know you know. I know you didn't. I know yeah, you're yeah, definitely... give you what I think they would say. Yeah. Um, let's take organic farming, which is sort of close to what the profits think. Um, yeah. Yeah. Right. Um, the people who founded it, you know, like Ebenezer Howard and those guys, we're taking the scientific knowledge of the time and trying to and, and, and trying to apply it. What's unfortunately happened from my perspective there is that this has become frozen and that the rules for organic farming are pretty much back where they were in, you know, in nineteen forty, where yes. we've learned an enormous amount uh more about how these environmental systems uh work. But if you Go back to the 1940s. You have people like Howard, who are among the pioneers of soil science, saying that many of the practices that you know farmers then were doing were damaging to soil ecosystems, and they're dead right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. And, it wasn't all and, blissfully yeah. prairie. Yeah, yeah. And you know they, the quote unquote progressive farmers of again back in the 1940s when all this was happening. We're following the um, rules of a guy named Eustace von Liebig. I talk about all this in the book, and I guess this is ending up like a promo for the book, so I apologize. Um, no, no, no. This is very related who, to what we do. Essentially, the land is like a petri dish, and you, you know, with this blank medium, and you pour in these chemicals, and you'll grow um, crops. And you know, the, the, to, there's a certain amount of truth in that. But what Howard was saying is, no, it's this living ecosystem. And you have to take that into account. And we now know that, that that's true. What has unfortunately um, happened often to you know, organic farmers is it kind of frozen in time. And, you know, if I had a hope for my book is that it would be a few organic farmers would read this and say, you know, there's their, in, their fundamental insight was there, but, but it's been 70 years now. Yeah. And I, I have to jump in and early days within our plant. I mean, what we make is genetic engineered. So uh-huh. 
by organic standards, by I'm assuming William Vaught, this would be very, very wrong. Uh, but I had a conversation with some of the people from the organic movement, and it was interesting because they had all these things that they were trying to accomplish. Everything was around connecting the environment, understanding soils and crops and removing chemistry. And I kept bringing them this perspective of this is exactly what we're trying to do. But at some point they said something that stuck with me. This is probably four years ago. They said, but we want to farm the way we used to farm. And what you're proposing is the opposite, right? And and I agree with you. I think that the moment where things get better is when we stop standing on the fundamentals of what we believe and instead try to figure out if the goal is to create less of this impact and produce enough for everyone. It's going to be some blend of the two mindsets. It's not going to be either or. And so hopefully we get there with that. But Yeah, I think the other thing that, from my perspective, um, that, that happened there is uh, the organic farmers, at the start, this is actually quite innovative stuff. You know, things like integrated pest management, you know, the attempt to balance, you know, elements of the ecosystem against each other. You know, this is all, for the 1940s, this is really, you know, front rank stuff. And so it's unfortunate that a tradition that began as acts of innovation has has become one that's hit by nostalgia, which is, you know, we want to do things the way that we used to do. You know, I would, you know, I live in, in New England and right now we're having a lot of trees, um, in our area go the way of the chestnut and tree by conventional breeding are really, really difficult because they have such long generations and, uh, the, 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 the genetics are complex. And so, you know, the kinds of genomics that are being done have really have promise for these trees and for tree crops which uh, used to be really important, again, in New England, um, and are not any, any, anymore. And, uh, you, you know, in a certain key way, I think that the very best way to get back to this balance of tree and row crops, which used to be pretty good here, um, would be to um, adopt wholesale these new techniques of um, genetic engineering and, and, gen- and genomics. And personally, I wish... That some of the um, farmers around here we 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 would go would we agree with that and I try to try to say no if you really want to go back you know to do this this balance of what's you know, you got to do it quick because these trees are dying. Charles, I want to ask you one specific story um, from the from the book that I love, which is around the white wheat uh, that went from the Green Revolution in India and mm-hmm. the red wheat in Mexico. Can you talk through? What was that about? Like, what was the difference and why did it matter? Okay. So the wheat in Mexico has dark red kernels. And that's the kind that is um, familiar in Mexico and that people like the um, taste of. And that was the kind that Borlaug developed. The wheat varieties that are in um, South Asia, in India and Pakistan and, 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 and Bangladesh, which are made into chapatis and rotis and all these delicious you know, flatbreads are valued for their whiteness. You, you know, the, the, the color and the um, texture are quite different than uh, than the wheat in, in Mexico. And when Borlaug brought his wheat over there, and this was, you know, at a time when hunger was unfortunately a terribly common thing in, um, in India and a large percentage of the population just didn't get enough to eat. 
um, he was bringing them something quite alien, um, something that was in a certain way against um, Indian traditions because it was dark and had the wrong texture and was coarse. I mean, this was, and he essentially, by doing this, it would be like trying to go to France and convince them to use, to make baguettes out of pumpernickel. Mm-hmm. I mean, pumpernickel is fine bread. But yeah. You never use it to make a baguette. And, you know, French culture is all wrapped up in things like baguettes and this very crispy, um, and, you know, bread that we've all, that we've all had. And so without telling him, a very important Indian, uh, scientist named Swaminathan, who was his partner there and just a, a remarkable guy who's still alive, um, quite elderly, but still alive exposed that his bread, you know, and this was again in the early 60s when technology was very much less sophisticated than today, to a nuclear reactor. And they just bombarded it um, with, with x-rays and other particles to induce mutations. And they got lucky, <laughs> incredibly lucky. And they got white uh, wheat out of the deal. And they gave it an, um, an Indian name. You know, so that it would be something that was part of the culture. And that's, you know, something like 70% or 80% of the wheat that's now grown in, um, in India, possibly more is from this irradiated wheat. And it's been fantastically, been fantastically success, successful. Um, even with the most traditional crops, because the farmers, you know, Swaminathan essentially listened to what people wanted. And right. he gave it to them in a way that they could um, understand and adopt. And I think that's a really key thing is to approach people where they are rather than trying to change them. Warlock, unfortunately, there was like, these are calories. These are good calories. You know, right. these are very productive. What, what more do you want? Right. And he said, no, we want something that fits our culture. And that's why I like the story so much, because I think this is maybe one of the best examples of both worlds meeting um, where it's okay it's even not okay. It's necessary to appreciate that it's not just science and solving basic need problems. There is there is a cultural understanding that needs to go into it. And nowadays people deserve both. And I don't know, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think this is something that's changed a lot in science over the last 60 years. Science, almost like a doctor, uh, there's a lot more bedside manners that go into it nowadays than there used to be. Yeah. I mean, we've learned more. And in fact, some of this is from the issues with the, the Green Revolution. You know, Borlaug was a, a crop scientist and, um, and a great one. Um, but he wasn't an economist. He wasn't an anthropologist. He wasn't a sociologist. And he didn't understand that when you came in and changed the system, the system would react. And, and that's a very abstract way of being, for example, uh, something that happened all over the world as a result of the Green Revolution was pretty definitely a, a downside, which is a lot of times poor people had been allowed to have their land because it wasn't worth very much. And the reason it wasn't worth very much is because it didn't produce very much. Now you come in, you bring in, you know, this new Green Revolution technology and it produces four times as much. Suddenly that land is worth something and suddenly it's worth stealing. And in places where the rule of law wasn't strong, which was a lot of the world in the 1970s and 1980s, um, that meant that a lot of people got pushed off their land by you know, rich people pushed them around and pushed them off their land and created, you know, lots of landless people who ended up in slums in these giant, um, Is countries this the main in the South. Is this the and, main criticism around the Green Revolution today? 
Yeah, that's the main I main criticism. And that criticism is totally justified. It's not of the technology itself, but that it was introduced blindly. And um, the result was just exactly as the critics say, there was a lot of human suffering when people got pushed off the land. And, uh, you know, there's an Indian novelist, uh, Rowanton Mystery, uh, who's written about, you know, this exodus of people being pushed off the land in rural India and into places like Mumbai. And um, it's very powerful and affecting stuff. And you can see what the criticisms are. I often think the criticisms should be focused on the social systems rather than the te- technology. But none, it is dead true that, that these bad consequences did happen. Do you think there was a way to avoid them? Or I think there could have been um, ways to uh, avoid that. But then that gets into me telling people how to run their country <laughs> a little worried about that but um yeah because in places like the middle west um which also adopted green revolution technology and also saw their um yields you had much less of that although unfortunately right now you're starting to see more of that with um the fact that uh, so many small, smaller farmers are feeling forced to sell to these large, you know, financial institutions that are based in the East Coast. And you've probably seen these maps of how many hedge funds and that kind of thing own um, farms in uh, in places like Iowa. And uh, it's, it's uh, that's that's a development I'm rather worried about because uh, they, of course, don't have any commitment to what they're doing. They're just it's purely a short-term investment, and you wonder if that's that's a good thing for agriculture. And Charles, this is Sean. I just had uh, a question for you because in the prologue, this is something that I was dying to find out as I was reading the book, because in the prologue, you talked about how you oscillate between vote and borlaug and that how you wrote the book to satisfy your own curiosity and to see if you could learn something about the roads that your children might take. The book was fascinating, but I really wanted to tease that question out because I don't feel like I got that in the book. But what did you find from that journey? Do you still oscillate? And what sort of roads uh, do you hope your children take? I, I actually, my children are, I think, trying to um, explore some of these issues. Um, I hope that their father hasn't pushed them too hard. Um, my daughter is uh, currently in, involved in, uh, she's an engineering and textile person. She's currently involved in efforts to figure out how we can avoid the enormous amount of waste that's associated with textile production. And this just a the textile industry is one of those sort of fractally awful industries in which there's just problems of every sort, ranging from, you know, the enormous um, difficulties in growing cotton in many of the places that it's being grown to um, the pollution associated with dying and uh, the troubles with serving to the um, sweatshops that make it to the enormous amounts of uh, waste, both in making it and in the clothes that are thrown away. It's all really um bad and uh she's focusing on on waste and trying to figure out if you can make stuff that's useful and good from the pre-consumer waste and also can is there some way that we can help with the stream of post-consumer waste which i don't know one of the bizarre things i've ever seen is going to chile's atacama desert which is this far away you know from uh anything as you can imagine and in the middle of this desert there's just huge mounds of blue jeans I mean, mountains of blue jeans that are, you know, 100, 200 feet tall. And uh, it's hard to imagine anybody that thinks that this is a good idea. <laughs> and um, so my daughter is trying to, it was working with in a lab at uh, in the Weiss 
Institute at Harvard in, in, in a partial effort to do something about that. And my son is also trying, is studying engineering with an interest in make things more efficiently. Um, I'm bragging that I, I just realized I'm a proud parent bragging about his kids. You probably want to cut that. <laughs> not, not, not at all. Nothing is more I, boring so they, than listening to parents blather about their children. I'm sorry, I can't believe I just no, did I that. Think it's interesting. So they've 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 maybe if if uh, I, I think it would be fair to say and and uh, that maybe they've chosen like middle road. Yeah. So they found yeah the benefits I, I of wizardom and the and the path of the prophet and managed to find a way to combine them. Yes. Now it's not you know I'm in a, as a journalist I'm trying to tell you what I you know, sync is happening um, and has happened as factual as I can. And so when I tell you now what I hope for and what I learned, um, it's much more, you know, my opinion and, you know, speculation and that, that kind of thing. So um, I hope you'll take it with a grain of salt um, <laughs> because uh, it's, it's, you know, it's, I'm much less certain of it. Um, but I, I, one thing I did think was that there was much more opportunity, in my opinion, um, for the two sides to cooperate than I, than I had realized. And, uh, you know, a small example of that is there's a tremendous fight, as you know, about nuclear power and, uh, profits basically really, really dislike it. And, um, wizards are all in to the extent that, uh, it's quite easy to find, um, nuclear advocates who are literally against, you know, renewable energy. And one thing I, I did wonder is how much of the profits our antipathy to it is based on the idea of these gigantic nuclear um, utilities, which seem, you know, sort of anti-democratic, you know, these sort of big politically powerful institutions that don't respond well to um, public concerns. Um, and if you, if you had many, many more scaled down nukes, you know, sort of sweet neighborhood nukes, like the ones in every hospital, you know, is that a way to um, use nuclear power possibly as a bridge fuel? Um, until renewables are, are there, you know, there's, there just seemed to be much more room like this for, um, in the middle for people to try to answer, use their own techniques to answer the other side's concerns. Indeed. And I think we've had uh, a guest on our show, a uh, scientist by the name of Dr. Pamela Ronald, who is. Oh, yeah. She's great. Right. She's trotting her path because she's a geneticist who's very involved in GMO research, but her husband is a regenerative farmer and they found a way to bring the cutting edge technology to the concept of regenerative farming. So I, maybe you're, maybe that's a maybe that's a hopeful note. Well, I think so. I, I think very much so. You know, um, my own feeling personally is that, uh, you know, there's this extraordinary explosion of knowledge about genetics in the last you know, 30, 30 years or so. We just learned incredible amounts of stuff. There's so much more to learn. And it would just be a shame if this wasn't used. And uh, there's so much that it, it seems to me could be used in a way that would be very pleasing to everybody involved. Charles, thank you so much. This has been great. Uh, and honestly, for our listeners, the book has many, many, many more really fascinating stories because we didn't even have time to touch on all the other verticals beyond agriculture. Um, but thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, it's my pleasure. And thank you for uh, um, looking at the book. It's always, it's always wonderful to, uh, to talk to a reader. And that wraps up this episode of Croptastic. Thank you again to Charles Mann for joining us today. As always, please remember to subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss an episode. And please share any feedback you have with us via LinkedIn or on our Twitter account at inner underscore plant. Thanks for listening.